Welcome to Season 5 of Level Up, a podcast where we explore how students, faculty, and staff at the University of Florida create presence and belonging. I'm your host, Antonio Farias, Chief Diversity Officer at the University of Florida. So welcome to another episode of Level Up on Presence and Belonging. And today I am honored to have David Julian, who is an Associate Professor in the Department of Biology. He is also Director of the XLab Project, the Bioscience Scholars Program, Science for Life Program, and the Santa Fe to UF Bridge Program. On top of all those things, and you might wonder how he has all the time to do this, uh, he is also an incredibly trusted and key advisor in a grant that UF received from the Association for Public Land Grant Universities called UF Aspire iChange Grant, which is designed to diversify STEM faculty at UF. So welcome, David. It's an honor to have you here in a more formal setting, I guess, uh, as opposed to in our regular meetings that we usually sort of engage in. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, At the risk of um, ruining your intro, the Science for Life program actually hasn't existed for about six or seven years, um, but I'm happy to talk about what that was and uh, the other, uh, but the MARC program would be another important thing that we could uh, talk about, but I'm happy to talk about those. Excellent. No, and I appreciate that. And and as I found in the two and a half years that I've been here, we've been doing some amazing things that for some reason or another, right, uh, have gone away. Uh, and we need to think about doing a forensic yeah, test that... to why, why things that have gone away that have actually helped in our diversity efforts, uh, why they've gone away and how do we resuscitate them and make sure that they don't sort of keep going in and out of cycle. So I appreciate you bringing that up because that is an important point. Well, the Science for Life program is a, is would be an interesting discuss in that regard, but um, like many programs that appear to have gone away, the the programs themselves in a formal sense, in in the whole sense that they existed before may be gone, but uh, but many times we learn things through those programs that do become incorporated into other programs. So there are many aspects of the Science for Life program itself that uh, continue and that informed uh, how we do things and how other uh, programs have done things. So I think all of these, we they, they are all uh, bricks that go into the foundation and they may no longer see them anymore, uh, but they're there. And I guess that's really, you know, we tease each other sometimes about me always trying to introduce evolution into the conversation. Uh, and that's an example, right? There's a natural selection process that occurs where some things work and some things don't. And ideally we have a process set up where we can select and continue the things that work and um, jettison or revise the things that don't work and then continue building from there. Yeah, that's that's perfect. Although you're sounding more like an engineer with this foundational sort of structure that you're talking about now. <laughs> well, there are so, foundations in bio too. <laughs> very true, very true. So we, we always start the podcast by asking the question, what is your story of belonging? Since I knew I was going to be on this, I've been dreading that question. I've been trying to think about, uh, and I'm going to turn it around and ask you, really, what do you mean by that? Uh, I've listened to a few of the other people you've talked to, and I, I, I need to understand better what that means because I don't think I have a sense of belonging to anything in in the sense that other people seem to have. So, what do you what do you mean by that? Oh, oh, you're a very good. Uh, you're a very bad interviewee because. Uh, and an excellent and a master of uh, of the craft, though, because you turn it back on me. I, I really leave it as as open as possible. Uh, it's it's I purposely it's a word that has um, and a concept that has really sort of um, 
intrigued me for a number of years. Um, and, and that's why the podcast like really focuses not on diversity, not equity, not inclusion, words that we already sort of have in some way or another become, um, I don't know, just either tone deaf to, or we think we know what they are. But this concept of belonging really sort of puzzles me because at the end, at the end of the day, to me, that that is the end goal of all the projects and the programs that we have is to have, how do you have people show up at a place of work, at a place of learning, at a place of research and feel like they actually belong in their full selves as human beings, right? What What is it, right? What are the, and there is no magic bullet to this. There isn't one thing that makes this happen, but what, what amalgamation of policies, practices, procedures, right, do we get to put in place messaging that that give, gives people a sense that this is a place where they where they can show up and be seen, right? So if if I could if I if you had to nail me down to it, it would it would be that sense of like how do you show up? How are you seen? And do you feel like you can like fully accomplish everything that you want to do? Yeah. So so with that perspective, then I would say that I would interpret that to be more for myself as a sense of purpose. Right. So I, I think I do have a sense of purpose, um, but I don't have a sense of belonging in that I don't feel like uh, UF, for example, is the only place where I could um, conduct that or, or, or um, try to achieve that. And it's not the only place where I do even now, but uh, it is a place where I can and, and, and try to do my best work or try to do the best I can to achieve that, uh, the, the goals. Um, but yeah, so I think that it's, uh, so I would interpret that to be in, in all the same ways that you said that, uh, the sense of belonging is uh, the sense of purpose to try to achieve change, to try to affect positive outcomes and to, uh, basically for, to not sound sappy, but just try to make the world a little bit better place. Right. Uh, and I think we could that, use more of that right now, can't we? Yeah, I think so. And I, and I think largely, uh, you know, the, the old saying, uh, life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. <laughs> if, I, if I look back, uh, you know, I, there's been a desire to try to help people who, um, who can need some help or provide opportunities to people who don't have opportunities or to, to try to make the system work better. And yeah. so I think that that is, although I've never really had that as a perspective goal, that I, this is something I'm going to commit my life to, it turns out that in, in looking backward, I've fairly consistently, except for brief periods where I was worried about other things, I've fairly consistently found the most reward in trying to uh, help people get opportunities, help people achieve their potential, help minimize inequities and uh, provide opportunities that I was given. I'm not uh, disadvantaged in, in most ways, at least not uh, in the ways that, that are important now. And so um, I had every opportunity and took advantage of some and didn't take advantage of others. Uh, but I think that there are a lot of opportunities at UF and, and nationally and internationally that are available to students uh, and people who aren't yet students and people who have graduated and the broader community that they aren't aware of, uh, opportunities to make a difference, opportunities to uh, fulfill their own potential that I think we can do a better job of facilitating access to, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, well said. I mean, it, it 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 speaks in a, you know, if I could put you in a in a in a box to to really selfless service, right? How do you mm. how do you service and how you how do you provide service to those to which this place has been for longer periods of time than not 
you know, exclusionary to, to them. Right. I mean, to a yeah. certain extent, you could say that, uh, I mean, UF is a good place to do that. Um, yeah. There are probably places that are even better, right? I mean, uh, most disadvantaged, uh, underrepresented students in STEM are at community colleges in the United States. And uh, I think that the community colleges are tremendously under-resourced. So certainly by the time we see the students here at UF, they've already made their way through a number of gauntlets. Right. And, uh, and there are many students who, who uh, would benefit from even more opportunities. And, uh, you know, one of the programs that, uh, that you know that, that you mentioned that I um, direct is the SFTUF program which helps provide opportunities to underrepresented students at Santa Fe College who aspire to go into biomedical research. And that's an NIH funded program. And uh, Tolini Martins uh, works on that with me here at UF and uh, Vertigo Moody, who's the chair of natural sciences at um, Santa Fe College and, uh, and, and formerly worked a lot with uh, Beatriz Gonzalez. And that's trying to provide opportunities for students to come here. And I think that we find that the students from Santa Fe uh, have a very different experience as college students in their first year or two than students do at UF, of course, even though they may have come from similar backgrounds and, in, and even the same high schools, it's a very different experience. And then those students, those that we work with that are successful in transferring to UF, it's a culture shock again. Uh, because they, they come to UF as transfer students and they have to adapt to the different pace of the classes, um, the size of the classes, the expectations for homework, uh, for out-of-class work, which are different. Uh, and they don't have the opportunities that our incoming freshmen do uh, to participate in all of the cohort building and spirit building activities. Those largely don't exist for transfer students, right? They're brought in and are just on their own. And so they are already at a disadvantage and then are uh, tend to feel a little bit more marginalized. It's harder for them to fit, uh, to, to find their place or their sense of belonging to UF. Right. They're largely successful, uh, but there are things we could do better. Uh, and I know that there are people who are uh, in, in CALS and class and elsewhere that are working very hard to improve the experience of transfer students. Um, and that's an example of uh, providing opportunities, yeah. but. It's a tiny fraction uh, of the total community college population that's served. Right. No, I, I, and I myself well, did my first two years at a community college. So I'm, I, uh, I would just, I was a non-traditional student. I didn't start college till I was in, I was 22 or so. And, oh, so we, uh, we share, we share a common background then because you, and you were in California at the time, right? I was, yeah. So where, what was your community college? Uh, I, I attended three, actually, but uh, Diablo Valley College and Los Medanos Community College. These are in Contra Costa County, which is uh, in San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. Yeah, I was at um, Mesa Community College in San Diego County. Uh, and yeah. then, then I ended up, uh, bizarrely, at Berkeley. Uh, so we, we, shared, we probably shared some, some, we probably crossed each other on the streets at some point. On the, oh, I lived in on... Berkeley for a while. Uh, Did you? For... Yeah, but that I, I only took one class at Berkeley. Otherwise, I, but that was while I was going to college at, at uh, San Francisco State University. But okay. I lived in I lived in Berkeley for reasons that aren't clear to me now. I can't remember why that was the right thing for me to do at the time, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. Probably because of the cheese board. Did you visit the cheese board? <laughs> I think it was just that the rents were cheaper. <laughs> Not anymore. Now it's obscenely no. expensive. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting how our how our inception into or our, our trajectories into higher education sort of come back and uh, and mirror themselves in many ways, right? So you came out of the community college system, and now you're you're paying it forward in many ways with this with a lot of these programs that you're with. Uh, I find myself doing the same thing of of always looking at access and and making sure that we don't forget that there is there's an incredible amount of talent. It's just that it's it's there's this like logger jam and we can't seem to figure out as a nation right or as an academy how to sort of how to do this well in a way that that captures millions of of individuals that have the potential to change everybody's lives if we just give them the opportunity to have the same kind of access here because your point about about community college students dropping in it, it's true I, I remember dropping in into berkeley and it, it felt like i just it teleported into an alien land and always feeling like an imposter up until the very end where I was like, did I really graduate from here? So, so yeah, it, I, 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 and you're right. I, I've had the same conversation with, with Santa Fe students that they feel for all the support we do give them, they still feel in many ways like they're, they're lost because they don't have the same kind of traction. You're right. It, that whole sense of like, the first two years of creating that that level of community, right, or belonging, going back to that word, is is vitally interesting. So let, let me switch real quickly to because you already answered part of this question. Because the second one I ask is is what about your work really excites you and accelerates you and makes you feel really passionate about what you do? Uh, I mean, you had talked about about the Mark program earlier and, and some of the other programs, uh, but I want to let you go any way you want to go on that. What really excites you about the work you're doing? Yeah, so I mean, of course, the work I'm doing, uh, you know, I think we can focus primarily or solely on the work that I'm doing with regard to trying to increase inclusion and diversity uh, and, and training students for research careers. Um, of course, I also uh, you know, nominally conduct uh, uh, research, right? Of course, as, as far as faculty member, I have a lab and I have students who are doing uh, research. And, uh, and of course I teach and all of those things are very rewarding. And I think I've been at the university long enough that I have the luxury of largely being able to focus on the things that I do find rewarding. And I think that partially comes from recognizing that the things I find rewarding, I tend to be better at. And so people don't usually don't, aren't as likely to ask me to do things that I'm bad at as I used to. And people around <laughs> me have learned the things that I'm not very good at and don't ask me to do those things anymore. Uh, but I think that the what, the question of what do I find rewarding uh, or exciting? Yeah, so uh, I think all of these uh, programs, the things that you and I work on to, together that I try to help you with, where we are focusing on um, things that the university can do better and things that we already do well that we can do more of that helps to level the, the playing field and helps to make sure that all students have access. There's a shift now in a student from a student deficit model to an institutional deficit model. We used to always have the student deficit model being that our goal as an institution, as, a, as a educators was to help students who were disadvantaged catch up, provide them the things that they missed. And that, and, and although functionally what you do when you have an institutional deficit model may not look much different, it's a different mindset, which is to say that it's not the student's fault and it's not up to us to correct the student, it's up to us to correct the way that we uh, structure our courses or the way that we structure our majors or the way that we structure and provide resources uh, outside the classroom. 
that, that makes us better address the fact that we have a diversity of students coming to the institution. And it's, it's an institutional deficit if we're not able to help all of the students be successful. As we become even more selective as an institution, and I've been here 20 years now, so our selectivity has gone up. We've seen shifts in the racial and ethnic demographics of the university, in some ways positive, in other ways negative. As you know, uh, the proportion of students who are um, identify as Black or African-American has been declining, while at the same time, the proportion identifies Latinx or Hispanic has been rising. So, and the overall proportion of students who are underrepresented has been increasing. But we, we need to make sure that we are as we get diverse students in here, but if they get to UF, they have proven themselves able to handle the, the, the high school curriculum and they're good at taking standardized tests and they're good, they, they do reasonably well at taking the SAT and they do the other things that our um, colleagues in admissions look for. And if they're not successful at UF, it's not a student deficit, it's the institutional deficit. And I think we, as you know, I'm a big proponent of trying to get more data to make sure that the decisions that we make are evidence-based. Yeah. So I think I'm excited right now that things we're working on to try to come up with better ways to understand where are the students having different experiences? Where are they, what are we doing well? And can we leverage that to um, make up for institutional deficits in places that we're not doing as well? Where are we losing students? Uh, where are the students not doing as well as they could? A big problem right now is uh, student mental health. That's only, it was, it was a big problem before, and it's only made worse now because of the pandemic. Uh, and we don't have enough data on that, right? We're, we, we could be getting more data on, uh, on the mental health of the students, the wellness of the students. We have programs in place that can help students, but we need to be better at helping students access those programs and helping them be aware of it and helping them recognize when they should access them, helping students understand that there are a lot of differences between racial and ethnic groups and cultural groups in the perception of mental illness and whether uh, what it means to have, to need help with, with mental wellness, right? I shouldn't say mental illness, but with wellness uh, and what it means, is it okay to seek help? And what does it mean if you seek help? Uh, sometimes it's just pointing out that 30, 40% of students uh, uh, nationally are, uh, can be classified as having clinical depression at some point during any academic year. Uh, many, many students come here uh, having a history of having to deal with mental health issues. And uh, a large number of students have taken uh, medication for mental health. Uh, and, but I think that we, don't have the structure in place to support those students. Estimates that 30% of students have a disability of some type, uh, diagnosed or undiagnosed, some, sometimes physical, sometimes uh, learning disabilities. Right. Uh, many of these disabilities are, are what are called invisible disabilities. And so I think it's just this, uh, the, the, the institution is much more diverse and it even is more diverse than we realize because of these issues that we aren't measuring. You know, I had a conversation recently with somebody who, um, was from, was from outside the US, uh, she came from a, a South American country. And she commented that she found it being strange, found it strange that when she applied for UF that she was asked to identify her race and ethnicity, right? And she, her initial perception was that, well, that's part of the problem is that we are labeling everybody. And, and but I, I said, well, that, but actually 
the other reason to do that, uh, the reason to do that is that if we don't know what the diversity is of our, the people we hire, then, then we, then you don't know that you have a lot of room to grow, that you right. have a lot to make up and you don't know where there are problems. So it's all, you know, I guess I'm sounding like a scientist, but it's, you, you can't fix a well, problem you are a scientist. you measure it, right? <laughs> well, that's what I love about you, David, is, is you are a scientist and you bring, you bring your scholarship to these vexing social issues that, that we face here in academia. I mean, you, your point about mindset a shift is is spot on, right? This this concept of the, you know, our liberal mindset, you know, feel-good mindset has always been about helping these poor at-risk students when that has never been right the, the proper approach. It really has been about institutionally, how do we put students at risk, right? Unintentionally, right, oftentimes, but still because of the way we were structured at, at the from the very beginning. The diversity that we have now has now caught up with us. And now we have to have diverse sort of operations for how we engage with these diverse populations. So I, I think that 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 really like hits the key about having to do a mind shift. And I think I, and I see this happening across the nation. I don't know if you're seeing in, in, in your field in biology across the nation. I, I know when we gathered some of our colleagues from math and physics, right, and, and chem, uh, there was the sense that we were sort of starting to sort of go around the corner on this issue and starting to be more proactive than we have in the past, right? I think that's definitely true. And I think that's, you know, those, there are national efforts. Um, they, they may have stalled a bit over the past four years, but I think they're gonna pick up again. Uh, national efforts to help faculty and institutions become better at, at doing this. Part of that stems from, of course, the recognition that having diverse groups working on problems isn't just good ethically, it helps you solve problems, right? So the greater the diversity you have in a group that's working on a tough problem, the more likely you are to find the solution. And diversity doesn't just mean racial ethnic diversity. I mean, it can be uh, the, all the other axes of diversity that we need to worry about uh, and, right. and think about and try to support. Um, but, but there's a motivation to do that in terms of whether you have to phrase these things in terms of, um, national competitiveness or um, or trying to make sure that we are um, serving uh, the, the population appropriately or giving everybody the opportunity to excel. Right. I think you're absolutely right. And so we see this, for example, APLU and AAU and uh, AAAS and all these other uh, groups that are an HHMI and other groups that are really investing time, effort and money into finding what works and then figuring out, I mean, just simply knowing what works at one institution doesn't mean it's going to work at another institution. Correct. Uh, and, you know, we, we look frequently at, we might look at UC Davis or, or institutions in Texas to try to understand what, what are they doing that that's good that we can do, but that doesn't necessarily work. UC Davis is a land grant institution, but it's a different student population, right? right? For example, they're, the California population, so. as you know, is, is very different than the Florida Hispanic Latinx population. Right. And, um, and some of those differences are important in terms of how we approach um, the, the way we teach our courses or the way we structure our majors or the institutional support that we provide. Uh, and some of those things are, are universal, right? They're, they're good for everybody. A rising tide raises all yeah. boats, right? But you, you need to be thoughtful. I mean, we need to be thoughtful about this. And fortunately, there are very good people uh, who are thinking about this and are 
trying to get groups focused on finding what works and what doesn't work and, and how do you implement that? I mean, I'm also on a, I, I chair a panel, an NIH panel for reviewing um, proposals like the MARC and SFTUF and uh, training workforce development proposals. And we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about how can, how can institutions take what works at one place and make that work in another one? Right. And uh, what sort of evidence do you need and what sort of evidence, evidence needs to be collected to both to, you know, you have to have pre and post data. You have to be intentional about collecting the data. And, and that is not, there's not always money for that. And it sometimes takes an institutional commitment right. to do that. Yeah, yeah, spot on. And, and I think we're getting there. And, and part of the reason I think UF is getting there is because of faculty like you. Uh, you keep pressing, you keep pressing that button, right? And eventually that button becomes a nerve and then eventually we feel it. And I think, I think we are feeling it. Uh, I mean, oh, it you're, you're... Yeah. Well, you know, I, I get on, yeah, I, it, sometimes the, the response is not positive, <laughs> but, but I, then I, then you just re withdraw and you try to take a different strategy. Right. So um, that, that, that's the key. That's the key. So you have to find allies. Right. Which I think is a, I think it was important that the university created your position. Right. And, and appointed you to it because that, that is both a strong signal, but also it means that there's a person to go to and a person who co can coordinate these activities. As we've discovered in the various committees, there are a lot of things that are going on at the institution that, that are good, but aren't being shared. Many colleges are doing things that are, are really innovative and uh, both in terms of uh, the faculty hiring and faculty support and, uh, and class structure and, and, and evaluating their courses. and. Right promoting diversity and, and just promoting, promoting equity and inclusion. And you know, it already works at UF in, in one department or in one college. So that makes it much right. more likely that it's going to be something that we can disseminate throughout the institution. Right? That's it. It's because, and particularly, as you said, it's homegrown, right? It's, it's not a best practice or an effective practice that let's say Michigan is putting in place uh, and it won't sort of transfer or we'll, we'll have organ you know, rejection here at UF. Uh, we already have proof of concept here. So so you're absolutely right. It's one of those things that, that I, I've, I've fallen behind on. And one of the things that I'm committed to in 2021 is really focusing on, on highlighting, right? You know, un, unbearing, if you will, all of these things that are happening in small pockets. But it, once we start looking at them as a collective, we see that we have a lot more assets here than we actually sort of before remembered, right? Everyone's looking for the big, the big change. All those big changes, as you know, happen because there's enough momentum. And then once people realize they're not working in isolation, all of a sudden we're actually going to get a lot more momentum on that. So you, you raise an important point. You know, studies show that institutional change is most effective when it's uh, grassroots. Um, and it, it has to be a combination of being initiated by the faculty or the students or the staff then having the support of the higher administration. But these but things that come top down People who've studied institutional change show that these things that are top down are much less likely to work. Right. And so these things that, that, like you say, things that we found that are effective at in various units on campus, many of those were stimulated by grassroots efforts and then are supported within the college. And then those can be supported throughout the institution. And, you know, the advantage right. is that you have the ear of the president and the provost and can help um, send a signal that, well, this is something that's valued. And you know the signals that come from the higher institution are important. People look to what the president says and what the provost says and what the provost does. And there, you know, there are people who are trying to parse those things out. Is this something that's going to be supported or is it not? And and I think that now that we're at 
top 10 and even higher, right? We're, what are we, top six or top seven institutions? Something like that, six. Yeah, and I think we, and it's all extremely important that this is among the large public institutions because we can't, on these kinds of things we're talking about, it's, it's, we can learn some things from private universities, but, but we really need to learn from what's working at the publics. But we now at a stage now, as we get in, as we get towards the top five, where we have to set the pace, we have to set the tone. And I think there's been, in my own observation, and you probably shouldn't, in my own observation, uh, up until very recently, and maybe still in some quarters, there's the idea that, well, let's look to see what our peers are doing, and then let's do that. Um, But I think that you can't break into the top five and hold that position by just, by looking over, by looking around. You have to drive forward. And so, so we need to, be the innovators now, because none of those institutions in the top five are willing to get, willingly going to give up their place. No, they're, they're not asleep at the wheel. That's that's for right. sure. And, and where I see positive, I completely agree with you. And where I see that now emerging, I, I think we're finally growing into our national chops. Because what what I see with this AI initiative, mm-hmm. uh, the way that that the provost and the president and the board has put it out, uh, really sends a a ripple effect throughout higher education uh, because it's not just AI for AI's sake. Uh, it, it's really like married into this equitable AI, which to me is is music to my ear because th- those are the key things, right? Ethics and, and e- equity and how you put them into this massive power engine, going back to what you're talking about, data and how we share that data. One of the other things that that I, that I see as a, as a benefit is our ability to share some of those resources with other universities. So I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I, I should say at this point, what I'm seeing is that we're shifting away from the new kids on the block to now staking our own. Uh, and I think th- it's powerful that we're using equitable AI as that, as that flag that we've put up. I think that's true. I think the signal that was sent that, you know, that the initiatives for hiring in AI should come from all of the colleges, including uh, humanities and the arts, and that, uh, that there's a clear emphasis on equity and ethics in AI, I think that um, that will be important. It'll be interesting to see how we do in, in terms of moving forward. I, I, part of the reason why we've seen some things improve as we've moved into the top 10, I think in teaching um, and in helping students. So we've seen improvements in some teaching practices and in faculty student ratios and things like that, that do benefit students. In many cases, as we've tried to move into the top 10, but in many cases, these were because the metrics demanded it, right? We knew what the metrics were that these ranking agencies used and the ranking agencies, not for nothing, have set those up to value things that are correlated with quality education. They're not necessarily predictive, uh, but they're correlated. Uh, class right. size, um, whether you are, you know, uh, whether you're helping students who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, how much do you increase their, um, uh, th- their socioeconomic level uh, right. or and after graduation. So these kinds of factors. But, um, but the, the, the rarefied air in the top five, it, the differences are smaller. And uh, I think those, those things are going to have to come from inside. We, we can't just simply game the metrics. We're going to have to really make fundamental changes. And I agree with you that we're growing into our own. People are paying attention to UF now uh, nationally. Uh, whereas before, I, I don't think when I told people I go to national meetings here, it's from UF, they wouldn't know what city that was in. They weren't sure what that was. Now I, that's not the case. And yeah. so um, and so we can trade on that and we can build on that. 
and I and I hope as you do that it's that it's going to yeah. benefit the students uh, as well as the faculty and the departments and the institution as a whole. Yeah, that that's the key. It's got to help the students. So so let me sh let me shift the question to um, you know th this past year has been a, an incredibly volatile year to say the least. And one of the things I, I want to know is 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 there something that um, that, that you've changed your mind about in this past year that has surprised you? Yeah, I just received my first pair of slippers. So slippers. I, yeah, I've, I, uh, you know, I'm in my <laughs> late fifties and I haven't had any slippers since I was six or seven. I think I just, I just had a moral um, disgust for them. But uh, as I pat around my house in bare feet and the floor is starting to get colder, I, I had to change my mind and, uh, so I'm wearing slippers right now for the first time, and I have to say they're pretty good. So uh, I, I love that. Uh, are they uh, are they cartoon characters or are they pretty standard? No, like sadly, I'm also a cheapskate, so they're just the cheapest, <laughs> simplest slippers that I thought would do the job, and so far they're uh, so far they are. But all right, well, well I know the answer you're looking for, though. No, that that's that. I'm looking for an honest answer, and and that's about as honest as I can get from a scientist. You're, you're you're way over the safety edge right now, David. So I appreciate your vulnerability on there. <laughs> so so we end the podcast with the question of of, of what brings you joy. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I think that uh, you know it's tied in with what I said was sort of my sense of belonging is really a sense of purpose. So I I, I get joy when I feel like I was able to be successful in in changing some practice that um, I think was not equitable or wasn't effective or in providing opportunities that didn't exist. The, the MARC program for, um, uh, for, for students who wanna to go to biomedical research, the SFTUF program we talked about, uh, these are uh, the Bioscience Scholars Program. Um, these are the things that helping individual students become more successful and then as I teach, Students come to me, if they come to me and they say, well, I found this topic really intimidating or confusing, but now I, uh, you know, I went to a seminar on this, a research seminar, and I understood what they were talking about, and that was really exciting. So, uh, you know, these are the, these are the things that, uh, that um, are, re are rewarding and, uh, you know, also scientific discoveries, of course, these things are always fun. Yeah, it's just I, I'm fortunate that uh, most of the things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis have the potential to produce rewards. <laughs> Usually, they're frequently hard problems, so they frequently don't. But that doesn't mean you stop trying. That's it. That's it. As you bring up the next generation. So thank you for the work that you do. Uh, thank it, you. It, it doesn't go unnoticed. Well, and it's uh, nice to have you here uh, to have somebody who's got our backs uh, when we try to do these things. So thank you, David Julian, Associate Professor at the Department of Biology, um, really a, a catalyst for change here, uh, for inclusion, for diversity issues, uh, for big data. Uh, you really are, are someone that I look up to and that I, I always feel like you have my back when, when we're doing these, these, uh, you know, these projects that, that are really asking us to do some tough work around around proving that, that these things matter. So thank you for the work you do here at UF. You've been doing it for 20 years. I'm so grateful that you're here. Uh, I'm so grateful that you actually are a catalyst for exciting other people as well. I've seen that in the rooms where we've been in, uh, where you really electrify the room and get people to really think in a very precise scientific way, I think to your point, 
about the things that have actually have to matter to us. So catalysts well, only work do. if they have a substrate they can act on. And so thank you for providing the substrate that uh, that that we can affect change using catalysts. I'll 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 make sure I. I uh, I'll make sure I, I mentioned that to my daughter uh, today. I was like, I was called a substrate today, honey. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe that didn't come off quite the way I'd intended it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, David. Thanks, you have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me, Antonio Farias, for another episode of Level Up on Presence and Belonging. If you enjoyed this episode, please like the track and share on social media. We welcome your comments and suggestions for future programs. You can find more episodes of Level Up and contact information for the Office of the Chief Diversity Officer at cdo.ufl.edu.